What's up, Bike Rumor fans? If you ever thought you could make your own energy bar, sports drink, or any other kind of athletic food, it's always good to hear how others have done it. My guest today is Jess Sarah, founder of JoJ Bar, a gluten-free, real food energy bar designed for endurance athletes. She shares her startup story, telling the unlikely series of events that led to launching, building, and ultimately selling a sports nutrition brand. We also talk a little about how her upbringing and support throughout her racing career came full circle to putting on her own event that helps fund scholarships for other girls in her community. It's a fun story that, as a fellow entrepreneur, I love sharing to inspire you to follow your own dreams and see where they take you. Please welcome Jess Sarah. This episode is brought to you by Hammerhead and their full-color Karoo 2 GPS cycling computer with predictive mapping and free global maps with points of interest built in. Listeners of this podcast can get a free heart rate monitor with purchase of a Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io and use promo code BIKERUMOR at checkout to get yours today. Hey Jess, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Hi Tyler, thanks for having me. So this should be fun because there's kind of... I've started doing more of these with no agenda and just having a conversation with cool people in the industry. And we met at Sea Otter at your booth where I was eating a lot of your samples because that's typically what I do for lunch at Sea Otter is try all the bars. And um, yeah, so I figured we'd just start off as you telling us some kind of story. Yeah, I read your um, nutrition roundup from Sea Otter. It was actually interesting to see what's going on because sometimes it was so crazy at the show this year. I didn't make my way around to everyone. So I was thinking about a story and I often say that I never planned on being an entrepreneur or that I didn't even really know what that was. And then ironically, I ended up starting a sports nutrition company out of my house and grew it to a pretty solid brand. And ironically, I was thinking Last week, I was asked to teach an entrepreneurship class to middle school girls at our community college. So it was, the format was basically, I stayed in the same classroom, but groups of um, middle school girls came through and I taught them about you know what my brand is and what being an entrepreneur is. And it dawned on me that I had it in me from a young age because I grew up in Whitefish, Montana, which is where I live currently. And when I was growing up, no one knew about Whitefish. It was like a poor ski town. And everyone who lived here was the same, like pretty much blue collar sort of ski bum community. And now everyone knows about Whitefish and it's it's changing and it's very touristy. But my mom was a cleaning lady and she raised my sister and I on a very small income. And one of the reasons why she started that business was so we could be with her at work and she didn't have to pay for childcare. Well, in second grade, that was the first year I ever made a connection to money or like that one family might be different from another family. We had to do a winter play and it was like a snow scene. And I wanted a Columbia Bugaboo coat. And I don't know if anyone remembers that coat, but it was like the first coat of its kind where you could zip the fleece out from the inside of the shell. And I had a brown coat from the thrift store that I hated. And I was really embarrassed. I did not want to wear this coat in front of the whole school at this play. And my mom explained to me, we can't spend $130 on a Columbia Bugaboo. Like, that's not something that we can do. 
And I realized, oh, well, then I guess I have to earn the money because I'm getting that damn coat. I'm not doing this play in my brown thrift store coat. So during that winter, I went around to all of the houses and the communities that she would clean at. And I had a little clipboard and I signed them up for my snow shoveling service, (laughs) which I think I charged $10 for, I remember. And I bought myself my coat. Nice. (laughs) And I was seven. So I think either I had it in me because I learned from my mom or just growing up in this community, like a work ethic. And I really think that's what being an entrepreneur is, is that work ethic and just willing to go outside of the norm and be really uncomfortable a lot. (laughs) So that's my story. And I I guess maybe I was made to be an entrepreneur. Right. I love it. Yeah. You know, it's everybody's got their own reason, right? Like your reason was a jacket. My reason for doing the things I've done is because I just didn't want to get a real job. You know, but it drove me, right? Like I, to this day, I, I still find things to do that I can control and that I'm, I'm the one doing it as opposed to working for somebody else, you know, doing something for somebody else. I think when you figure out that you're intrinsically motivated to do something, it's, it's much easier. And then it's just fun too, right? Like, I mean, how much fun have you had on this journey of figuring out how to do like all the things? I mean, you can't even really describe it. It's like a terrifying type of fun. It's no wonder I'm also a bike <laughs> racer, right? It's like it's terrifying, but it's also fun. Like the crossover is unreal. Odd type of type two fun, right? Like you look back and think, I don't know. I don't know if I look back and think it's fun. I just, I think it's fun why you're doing it. But yeah, a little terrifying when you realize it's kind of like all the cards are on the table at every instance. Yeah, you look back and you take a lot of deep breaths like, Ooh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Check. <I> did that. <laughs> yeah. Make a lot of mistakes. Hopefully, learn from them and figure out how to do it better the next time. Right. Yeah. So your story about sea otter is not uncommon. There's every, almost everybody I go to. People are like, "Hey, what have you seen that's cool? What's cool?" And I'm like, literally, I've seen so much that I have to go through my camera to tell you where I was five minutes ago. Um, but yeah, nobody that works at Booth, especially like the smaller brands, where it's you know, it was like you and maybe one person helping you. Those people rarely get out of their booths to go see what else is there. So glad you could check out the coverage. So tell me about Joe J. Barr. You know, like where did the idea come from? You know, in your opinion, like what makes it special and different from all the other energy bars out there? Yeah. And so again, it was like, it's one of those stories where you start making a product for yourself. And I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to create a business and compete against these other companies. But so... Just to back up a little bit, I left Montana after I I graduated from the University of Montana in 2004. Um, I did an undergrad in exercise science, and I was really like on the science side of athletics. I wasn't a cyclist at the time. I didn't compete in sports at the time. I was drawn to being outside, and I was drawn to the feeling that like endurance and outdoor adventures provided me. But I really was kind of a lab rat. And I was very excited that I got accepted to San Diego State University. I think they only accepted seven people the year that I got into that graduate program. So I went for exercise phys. And the reason why that program was so competitive was because they have an environmental chamber at San Diego State. And that's where I wanted to focus my research was looking at environmental studies with athletes and kind of 
manipulating that scenario and learning about training adaptations and things like that. So do you mean like like changing the environment that they're training in, right? Like hot, cold, you know, humid, dry? Exactly. So it's like a big, it's like a glass chamber, just like you would think. And you can change temperature, cold, hot, humidity, you can change elevation. So there's a lot you can do with that. And my study was that I kind of fell into, it was already IRB approved. So every research project has to go through an internal review board process where they say like, yes, you can, you can ask people to do this and it's safe and it's controlled. So, you know, not like, like, <laughs> hey, come on over to the lab and get in the chamber. Anything could happen. So there's a funny side note to this story that I'll tell. So what we were looking at was calcium loss through sweat in elite male cyclists. And basically, I was asking these guys, these young elite guys to come to the lab and to ride their bikes on the trainer in this hot, humid room and I was going to put these patches on their skin and collect their sweat. A really important piece of environmental studies is monitoring core temperature, especially with heat and humidity. So today you can swallow a tablet to do that. Back then you measured core temperature by inserting an anal thermometer. Oh, geez. <laughs> which is like... I thought you were going to say like infrared, but... No, that would be way too easy. <laughs> and this thing is like, it's probably two feet long. And you have to ride with it also. So you can imagine like... And you had people volunteer for this. The guys were lining up. Well, we were paying 200 bucks. So that's like cha-ching for any budding cyclists. Like get these guys in there. And they, they are like pressuring me, wanting to know if I've done it, of course. So I put myself through the study. And another factor that you look at in any study, and this is part of the control process is you want to make sure that their current level of fitness is not impacting your results. So we would have them do a VO2 max test to sort of qualify them as elite. So when I did the VO2 max test, I found out that my VO2 max was extraordinarily high, like basically Olympic level for a woman. And I didn't even ride bikes. So that's how I found my connection to cycling. And luckily, my professor was a cyclist, a mountain biker, and sort of like the whole community of professors at San Diego State. They were all cyclists. They were all involved in cycling and mountain biking. And one in particular, my sports psychology professor was married to, Les- is married still to Leslie Patterson. So she's three-time Xterra world champion and most recently known for writing the screenplay for All Quiet on the Western Front, which has just won some Oscars. So very cool. She was working on that back when I met her in 2006, 2007. So we got connected. And this is my segue into why I ever started making an energy bar. I became obsessed with cycling. I became obsessed first with Xterra off-road triathlon. And Leslie was my coach. And we became really good friends. And I decided to delay doing a PhD to pursue professional athletics. And eventually, Leslie ended up getting Lyme's disease at a triathlon. And it took a while for her to get diagnosed. And when she was diagnosed, she was told to go on a gluten-free diet. So now just to like timestamp this is probably 2010. And gluten-free was not 
a readily available or tasty, desirable (laughs) sort of lifestyle back then. And she was devastated because our favorite thing to eat on the bike is cookies and baked goods and essentially just real food. So my thought process was, well, there's really no bars out there that are gluten-free and bars at that time were it wasn't like what we have now. We're in this like revolution of sports nutrition. It was Cliff and Power Bar and, you know, just the options weren't the same as cookies from bakeries. So I (laughs) decided I would make a cookie bar that was gluten-free, that was baked, which is unique. And I wanted to approach it to have more like culinary flavors, like things that you normally don't find in bars. Again, when you back yourself into this business model and you think about the margins of selling a bar. Clearly, I wasn't thinking about that. Yeah, they're pretty small from what I understand. Yeah. (laughs) To this day, I mean, our bars are $3. They're on the higher end, but it's because of how we make them. And it's the ingredients and it's the process of baking a bar. Like we're not taking shortcuts and we don't apologize for it. That's our, you know, our market is, it's different. It's not a mass market. But that was the that was the thought process behind the bars. And before I knew it, I was so overwhelmed because everyone in my cycling and training community w- wanted to order. And then word trickled out through Southern California. And I had bike shops literally calling me asking if they could sell the bars like under counter, like sort of, <laughs> you know, it was like the, the black. Yeah, we know these aren't like FDA approved yet, but. <laughs> right. No, no labels, no guarantee. What was the timeline of that like from, you know, 2010-ish when you started tinkering with the recipe to bike shops calling you for them? Within a year. I mean, I started getting creative with the flavors and Leslie asked me to make the white chocolate coconut blondie. That was her idea. And I thought it would be gross. I'm not a huge fan of that flavor combination. And boy, was I wrong. And I'm glad that I listened and took feedback in pretty much every flavor was inspired by someone else who would bring me an idea like a friend of mine I wanted to make an apple pie and he told me about his grandma's apple walnut cake and that's how our apple walnut cake flavor came about so and you've got one with uh the bacon flavor yeah pancakes and bacon is just yes. because I love pancakes it's like my favorite breakfast and why not try it why not do something different did you try that yeah, one? I did. Yeah, I have a couple of questions, but I just my little side story. And that is, I, I didn't like this as a kid, but my brother did. What my, you know, my mom would make waffles for us some mornings and she would, on his, once she poured the batter in, then she would lay some bacon strips in and close it and cook. And it would like cook the waffle and the bacon together at once. And um, now it sounds delicious. When I was a kid, I thought it was silly. But yeah, no, so I'm, I'm curious because I know the rules for food prep when you start adding meat are very different. So like, are you actually using bacon or is there a way to make it taste like bacon without real bacon? This is a great question. And this particular flavor was the hardest to figure out. Usually we'll do about, sometimes I'll nail it, like the lemon blueberry quinoa. We did one R&D trial and it just worked. This one, we did seven. (laughs) It was a lot of trialing. So I wish I could put bacon in it. And I even considered like a bacon bit, but those are all made with like gross soy products and things that I didn't really think I wanted to use. So I started working with a flavor house that makes like a vegetarian, sort of like a liquid smoke. And in the beginning, that flavor used to be a lot smokier. It was very clear that there was a liquid smoke in that bar. And 
some people would just try it and spit it out, but our fans were super fans. So over the last couple of years, I've sort of tapered off the smoke and made that because it's a custom flavor. It's a little more salty. And then we we use pure maple syrup for the sort of like pancakes part of it. So it's pretty, it's interesting, like what you can accomplish with different smokes and flavors. Yeah, no, Flavor Houses, it's an art what they do. It's amazing. I used to be in the beverage industry and played with a lot of different flavors and things. And yeah, it's incredible how talented they are and a little scary how they can make something that's not even remotely chemically similar to an actual food product tastes like a real food product. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned soy being icky. I'm not a fan of soy myself. Some people are, but so do you use like soy and other, you know, like what, what protein sources do you add to yours or is it all, what do you do? So we don't actually add protein to JoJ. One of the things that I wanted to do is I sort of back the formula into the macronutrient panel that, that I was looking for. So I looked at these bars as I'm big on carbs. Let me preface this first. Like I'm, I've been saying it for years, carbs make you fast. They don't make you fat. And like, I'm so happy to see the industry coming back around and more athletes talking about taking in up, you know, hundred grams of carbs per hour and really showing like that is what fuels our body at high intensities. It's what fuels our brains. But with JoJ, I was looking at it as that product that you do a hike and you get to the top of the hike and you want to open something that like tastes good or you're doing a long zone two endurance ride, you know, day in, day out in the winter as you're preparing for your season. And I wanted it to be that balance of fat and carbs. So the fat fueling those lower intensity and providing a mix of sort of a slower burning carb, which is why we use brown rice syrup. And then a quicker burning carb, which is why we use honey. And honey is also our natural preservative because the bars will mold in like a week and a half without honey in them. Like honey is so cool how it it does that. I didn't want to add protein specifically because I was looking at this as like an on-the-go enduring product. And, you know, protein just draws unnecessary water and blood to your stomach. If you're, you know, out on a five hour ride. So our nut sources, and that's the first ingredient in every product is nut butter. And we don't have to do that. Like there's a way to not do that and make the bar less expensive and go into grocery and be in every store in the country. And it's just not what we want to do with the products. So you'll see like five to six grams of protein per bar, which is on the lower side, but I think perfect for that endurance athlete. And that's mainly from the nut butters. Yeah, mainly from the nut butters. And like, there's a little bit of protein and because it's gluten-free, we're using gluten-free oats, rice flour. It's like a healthy, it's like a cookie batter really is what it is. And that's how, when I first started making it, I actually was using eggs and almond milk. And so I figured out how to not do that in production and sort of make something that still has that like soft, chewy, like when you bite into it, it's reminiscent of something that would come from a kitchen. Right. So why not eggs and almond milk? Goes back to the shelf stability. It's tricky. And we only have a 12-month shelf life, which is, you would think it's desirable for the consumer. It's not desirable for distribution. Um, It's a tricky thing. But it's like, if you really want something that is real and the shelf life is over 
12 months, it's probably, you know, (laughs) you should probably be taking a look at what that is. Hey, real quick, this episode is sponsored by Hammerhead. Power, speed, and cadence are all pretty standard these days. But what if your bike computer could predict upcoming gradient changes or find you a cafe or campsite along your route? The Hammerhead Crew 2's free global maps with points of interest, full-color touchscreen, and advanced GPS routing let you see the road ahead, and their climber mode shows upcoming climbs and gradient with or without a route loaded. Check it out at hammerhead.io and use promo code BIKERUMOR to get a free heart rate monitor with purchase of the Crew 2. Just add both to your cart and use that code to get this exclusive offer just for our listeners. I remember um, the RX bars that um, got real popular. I think they still are. But I, I remember their, you know, their label is pretty simple. It's just like these four ingredients, five ingredients. And egg whites was always one of them. And I was like, I could not figure out how they put egg whites in this and got it to shelf stable. And then I realized it's they're using an, a dried egg white powder, which changes everything. But does that... You know, the last guest I had on here was the guy with First Endurance, the formulator and scientist. And he's like, yeah, that stuff goes bad super fast, too. You know, lots of problems with egg white powder. So is that like, is there any solution for that or you just didn't need it? So I I guess I was I was nervous about that. And that was the first route that I was actually going to take. And then when I kind of expanded JoJ, I started working with a really small co-packer that was 15 minutes from my house at the time. So it was like the star, the stars aligned for me to take the next step with this co-packer. One, they were tiny and they basically didn't even have MOQ. So you could just go in and you could make like a thousand bars. And yeah, it's pretty rare. <laughs> it's super rare. They didn't require down payment up front. They gave us terms. That is impossible to find. So even the fact that I made it to that step pretty much hinged on the fact that I found this production partner. And they told me, you should try using potato starch and tapioca flour. And that will mimic what you're trying to do with the eggs. And it will also help with like the gluten-free mix and create that like chewy, moist product that you're looking for. And it, I mean, it just worked. So I had luckily good advice from them and never even tried using the egg powder. So I have a little business story to tell, but I wanted to bring up honey again real quick. So my son was explaining to me that the reason why honey is like an antiviral, antibacterial, a good preservative is it's, there's so much, it's so dense with sugar, you know, or fructose that it'll absorb any moisture. And so there, it leaves no moisture for any bacteria or something to grow. Is that kind of about right? You know what? That's actually, it's a good question because I talk a lot about the honey and I don't know the science behind it. That makes sense to me. That's interesting. He goes, he learns these weird little things. It's pretty fascinating talking to him, but that was one that stuck out in my mind. Because yeah, honey, you know, there's people rub honey on wounds because it's a antibacterial, antiviral. Yeah, my business story, because the production lines with the minute small MOQs and all that, you know, for people who are listening to this and thinking, oh man, I could I could start my own little bar or beverage or whatever. When I was doing an energy drink product. It was the canned thing and all that. And we had found a co-packer to fill it. And so for people who don't know, a co-packer is basically somebody who will pack your product, you know, package it, fill it, whatever for you. Mm-hmm. We found some, and this was, you know, still early days of the whole energy drink craze. But as there became more and more competition, there was more and more demand for the line time at this co-packer. And eventually Monster just got so big and so popular that they went to several of the co-packers that we had been using and said, we will buy 100% of your line time. And so 
these places no longer had to change any equipment, rinse stuff, or there was no downtime for them. And they're like, yeah, sorry, we can't feel free anymore. And it was just, it was an unfortunate side effect of the category becoming so popular. So, you know, just yep. hopefully the bars don't become so popular that you get kicked out of your co-packers because it it's makes it really, really hard for small brands to compete against, you know, not that Cliff would do something like that, but Cliff doesn't even own Cliff anymore, right? So yeah. who knows? I, you bring up a good point. And when I was teaching this class to these middle school girls, part of me just wanted to say like, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, right. I've thought about that a lot too. <laughs> hard. And it's like, it's not what you think it is. I think a lot of people have an idea first and an idea is just not a business, unfortunately. Like you have to learn how to be passionate about your P&L and your business plan and all of these crazy things that you don't think that will come up. Like you live in a litigious world too. And so there's, there's a lot of things that you have to do, especially with food, right? Like food is another food or a canned beverage is a whole nother level of trying to crack that code. But actually funny story about our co-packer and just to elaborate on where JoJ is now. So I actually don't own JoJ anymore. We were acquired two years ago by the company that you visited at Sea Otter. It's called Elite Active Nutrition, A-L-E-T-E. We named it to symbolize that we're for all athletes, um, not just elite athletes. And Elite also owns Salt Stick, the electrolyte replenishment product, and Bonk Breaker, which is another energy bar brand and also makes the energy chews. So... The reason why I'm telling the story is because the founder of Bonk Breaker actually started in that same little kitchen in Southern California that I was in. And I knew that he, when you are in a kitchen, you're not supposed to know who else is there. But if you spend enough time there, ultimately, you're going to see a roll of film or you're going to notice (laughs) something's going on. So I was like, oh, Bonk Breaker. Interesting. I love Bonk Breaker bars. So we kind of like tootled along in that kitchen until the end of 2019. And the night before Thanksgiving, everyone that was in that kitchen got an email from them saying that they had sold to a cannabis edibles company. Oh, geez. They had been working on that for a year and couldn't say anything due to contract that they had. And basically like you have to get all your stuff out in the next couple of weeks and we can't make your purchase orders for you. So it was like, panic town all through Thanksgiving weekend. And I had connected with another kitchen at a trade show and immediately called them and was able to like facilitate the process of moving there. And that's where Bonk Breaker went also. (laughs) That's funny. And so here we are. Now we're like brother sister brands and we're in this other co-packer that has turned into a much better partner. But yeah, like I guess you're just a firefighter as a business owner. Yeah, hundred percent. Lots of small fires and occasionally the big one. That's yep. all hands on deck. Yeah, it's you know the the commercial kitchen thing is interesting because I've got a, a lady that we become friends with that does granola at our local farmers market, and yeah, she has to use a commercial kitchen. And it's like one of the rules for the farmers market. Like you can't just sell pe- prepared foods unless you're using a commercial kitchen or you have your own kitchen inspected, which is. Apparently not all that hard to do either. Yeah. Yeah. It's just something that people might not think about if they're making something. It's like, yeah, there's there's a lot of rules when it comes to food. Yeah, there really is. And I mean, you never want to get anyone sick or create a problem. I think 
California. Are you in California? No, I'm in North Carolina. I imagine Cal- California's got so many rules. Prop 65, one of them, the most arbitrary rule of them all. But they act, they did actually a good thing a few years ago where they, maybe this has trickled to other states where you can get your own kitchen certified if you're making like less than 30K a year in gross sales or something, which is helpful. But yeah, it's food is an interesting thing. And now that I work for JoJ and I work for Salt Stick and Bonk Breaker, my actual role is VP of product development and innovation. Um, and I also am on the community side and sort of the athlete and event side. But I'm learning a lot more. And it's one of my favorite things about my role is with Salt Stick, it's a whole different world than food, right? And we use different production facilities. And it's been really, really neat to kind of take on a new role and a new set of challenges and be part of creating an innovation plan for that brand as well. So I'm I'm really enjoying that part of it. And it's Part of the reason why I wanted to sort let go of being an owner because I was mostly like arguing with UPS and packing daily orders <laughs> and like, you know, doing the things that I was like, this is really not. I'm getting burnt out. Like I I thrive in this environment where I can be creative and where I can be in our community and ensuring that our brands are considering the big picture of what communities look like in sports now, that it's a variety of different folks and helping to provide resources to underrepresented communities. And that's a really big and important part of my job too. All right. Cool. Yeah. One of my the last uh, or two episodes ago, I had Dove Tate on from Parkour Wheels and he's, yeah, they're trying to raise money now. It's the same thing. It's like taking him out of having to deal with shipping and receiving problems and bookkeeping, all the little things that a founder has to do until you have the resources to have a support staff. So how did the acquisition come about? Were you shopping it around or did they approach you? Yeah, our current CEO, Mac, he reached out to me on LinkedIn and I rarely respond to messages on LinkedIn. But something, it just, I was like, okay, why not? I'll I'll talk to this guy. And in our first conversation, I pretty much knew, like, I felt like he was like an uncle or something. He just seemed really, it was like really natural. And he brought up that the platform is owned by private equity and not to be scared of that. And really what they, they were looking, they wanted to get me and they wanted help on the community side and part being part of innovation. And then they obviously also wanted JoJ. The idea is to build a platform of sports nutrition brands that were, you know, one-stop shop. The timing of it was great because we had just went through this process of transitioning to a new kitchen and then abruptly going into COVID and having that kitchen shut down. And we were dealing with a lot of challenges. And I was already like forecasting what I thought inflation was going to look like at the time. What I didn't know was it was going to be like way worse. So I thought this is, I didn't have an ego about being a business owner that was going to raise money and sell and become rich or that was not my goal. My goal with the product was I wanted more people to know about JoJ. And I've always wanted to help give back into communities because the amount of help that I received to race professionally and the amount of resources financially, people's energy, people's homes, like through my injuries is astonishing that anyone would go that far to help 
someone be, be an athlete. And so my goal was always to use my business as a platform to infuse those resources back into the community and to keep it growing. Nice. Speaking of community, you um, now have an event that I think I hope I'm not missing words uh, or memories uh, you and your husband put on in Whitefish. And Whitefish is amazing, by the way. Just I've only been once, but man, the mountain bike trails there are so good. I want to go back. But yeah, so tell us about the event. Yeah, so it's called The Last Best Ride, and it's named after um, Montana is known as the last best place. And we wanted to name it a ride and not a race because, again, like you can come here and you can eat your stem all day and you can compete with Ted King and Howard Grotz and Laura King and Sarah Sturm. Or you can come and you can make friends and eat snacks and enjoy the views of the rivers and the mountains. And we encourage both of those things. And I think we've done a good job of that balance. The ride was it was a COVID project. If I'm being honest, like I really pushed when Sam was a little more hesitant. So my husband, Sam Boardman, folks might know him. He rides for Legion of LA. He was kind of like, what are we doing? Doing, creating a bike race. It's kind of like owning a business. Once we learned that we needed seven different land permits to make this race work, it was the first year was, it was a challenge. But what we had going for us is that the last best ride is actually a nonprofit. And we, the idea of setting it up was to create a scholarship fund for local women um, and now women across the state of Montana. Now that we're in year three and we've been able to grow this idea, we provide scholarships for women going to post secondary education. Um, and it's based on uh, financial need and academic merit. And that's just sort of a way to kind of honor how I grew up here. And I mentioned in the beginning of this, growing up low income and not having all the resources to just, you know, go to college and have it paid for. So I had access to lots of scholarships and community funding that helped me and it impacted me in a huge way, obviously, because I've always dreamed of having my own scholarship. So that's the special part of our race. And it's a little overwhelming how much our participants have adopted that and really embraced it and like how much it means to them. I'm even getting emotional talking about it right now because it's it's a really special thing that we've grown here. So that's, I mean, running a scholarship seems like a business in and of itself. Are you, are you actually the one like reviewing applications and doling out the funds? We have a committee this year, a gal named Megan Snow. She is our director of our committee and she keeps me super organized. She has a skill set that is, <laughs> but my brain's kind of like the brain that's oscillating all the time. And she's super organized. And we have another gal, Elise Donovan, who helps with applications. So we do that together. Tonight, I'm actually going to our third high school of the year to present awards. So I present the awards myself. And then with the race, that's grown from Sam and I at stress level 100 out of 10 to (laughs) having a little bit more help. We have a a board now. We have one part-time contractor helping us. And just like our parents and this community and the volunteers, it's incredible. You know, anyone who runs an event will talk about volunteers and 
the community, but until you're in it and running an event, you just don't know how much it really hinges on the involvement of so many people. Yeah. I mean, you can't do an event of any real size without volunteers. I mean, not not just the amount of work that's involved, but like the economics of it, right? Like if you had to pay all these people oh, to be yeah. course marshals and volunteers sign in and all this, it just all of a sudden these events don't make any economic sense. No. You wonder why race entries are so expensive, even just covering permits and insurance and food and all the things that go into a race. Like it's kind of neat to be on this side of it. And then to think of all of the races I've done through my career and like doing a stage race, even and it's like, whoa, a stage race, doing it more than one day. Why do people do that? <laughs> so hard. Yeah. So and it makes you really once you've been on both sides of it, you really appreciate when it's done well. And yeah, very cool. Yeah. I hope I, hope I can get you up here one day to experience the event. It's definitely special. I want to. I, I've been trying to figure it out for this year, but it might be next. But I will definitely make it up there for last best ride. Well, cool. yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your story. It was fun. And I always love talking to a fellow entrepreneur. Yeah, likewise. It was really good to connect at Sea Otter again. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcasts and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.